Blog Talk Radio. Radio Grassroots Holistic Health Show for Sunday, November 13th, 2010. I'm your host, Wesley Gray, coming to you live from New York City at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm sorry some of you tuned in and we weren't on, but we had a little glitch in terms of the time and the station uh, connection. But here we are now, and I must say that our show today is pretty exciting uh, that we are debuting the my first reading of an internationally best-known seller, a book titled Of Water and the Spirit. And we will focus on this being, uh, as well, we will focus on the National Month of Diabetes Awareness. And we also have a special announcement to make later on in the show. But um, for now, I, as I begin each show, I'd like to acknowledge and, and thank the most, one most high for allowing this show to take place. And I thank my ancestors and I Send blessings of love and respect to my elders, my mother-in-law, my siblings, and my lovely wife. Good evening, everyone. Alafia, hetepu, namaste, shalom, assalamu alaikum, peace and blessings. I extend greetings of peace, and I recognize the divinity within all of you. Uh, today I will be reading the introduction in Chapter 1 of the internationally known bestseller, of Water and the Spirit by Dr. Maladoma Patrice Somay. I, I interviewed him on my show on October the 23rd of this year, 2010, and at that time, he talked about the healing attributes of the African drum and its relationship with our ancestors, with our family, and also with our collective community throughout the African diaspora. I would like to suggest that you log into that show in my blog talk radio site and click on the archives to listen to that segment when you get a chance. And now for the special announcement that I mentioned earlier, 
It's about a new program that I have created. It's called the Million Home Drum Network. And it came to me from spirit that every family within the African diaspora and all other communities that are committed to healing and reconnecting to our African roots should have an African drum in the home. And the goal is to have at least one million homes with drums by the end of the year 2011. The millionhomedrumnetwork.com site is currently under construction. However, if you would like to register and become one of the founding members, please send me an email to millionhomedrumnetwork.com at gmail.com, and I will keep you posted. And also, by the way, if you're interested in purchasing an African drum, which will be just in time for the up-and-coming holidays, please feel free to go to my website, and that's at www.drumsofchangedrumsofspirit.com, or you can go to www.drumsofchange.com. Either one will work. And, oh, yes, I, um, you will be able to purchase drums via my associate partnership with Amazon.com. And some of the drums are actually priced as low as $29, and that includes shipping. I call these drums starter drums, which make a perfect gift for youngsters and first-time drummers. There you will also find drums for adults and those of you who are experienced and professional drummers. And, of course, those drums are, are you know, priced. The price points are at a higher ticket range. Uh, anywhere from uh, $200 to over $500. But, of course, they have many drums that are priced under $100, and indeed the one I just quoted was at $29, which includes shipping. Um, the drums that you purchased from my site uh, will be financially able to support the brothers and sisters in Africa who make them and export them here and abroad. And also I must add that you will, uh, yeah, I recommend that you you go to your local African drum store in your neighborhood so that you can support the merchants in your local community. I um, would like you to also take a look at my site at Drums of Change, Drums of Spirit, and I have a link to a YouTube video that I did, and that's on the front page. The video was done during President Obama's inauguration, and it was an honor uh, to our ancestors and also his becoming the first African-American president. And I also talk about, towards the end of the video, uh, the importance of the African drum and having it within our family and our community as a focal point to discuss and have a conversation about our African rituals and traditions that we have uh, been drawn away from for the last couple of hundred of years. I must also add that my wife and I were honored to have Maladoma Somme as a house guest at our home last year for about a week, and we were just soaked in so much of his, uh, his knowledge and wisdom of the African ritual and the healing traditions of the Dagara people. As always, I invite you to call in with your comments about the book itself and with general comments regarding this book and any other books that were written by Dr. Somme. You can also, you know, feel free to ask, do you believe in the principles, or should I say share, if you believe in the principles of ritual, magic, and the initiation of the African perspective, or any other type of cultural traditions that involve ritual, magic, and initiation. Have you experienced or had experiences with any of these types of traditions? Are you currently involved in a religious or a spiritual path that does not recognize these traditions? And does the belief 
and ritual, magic, and initiation conflict with your family values or upbringing. If that is the case, please feel free to call in and to share your thoughts. At this, there is no right or wrong answers with regard or opinions regarding this particular subject matter. I must just stress that on this show, everyone's thoughts and opinions are respected. This show will also inform you of practical tips for enhancing your overall your overall quality of life, your spirit, mind, and body. And I must share with you that I'm not a medical doctor, and I'm not giving medical advice in any way of fashion. What I do share is what personally works for me and my family, and I hope that you will find some benefit. With all things, of course, check with a licensed medical professional before embarking on any changes within your health routine that we might share with you. I would like to take a short break now, and when I return, I will begin reading the introduction in Chapter 1 of the International Bestseller of Water and the Spirit by Dr. Maladoma Patrice Somme. The chat room is currently open. Please feel free to enter and interact with each other. And for those of you who are listening in on the Internet, the call number is 323-927-1412. And if you wish to speak with us, please remove your headsets and stand away from your computer modem to avoid feedback. I hope you do enjoy the show. We will be back in about a moment, okay? Thank you. by reading the introduction to Of Water and the Spirit by Dr. Malodomi Patrice Somme. My name is Malodoma. It means roughly, be friends with the stranger enemy. Because the Dakara believe that every individual comes into this life with a special destiny, some names are problematic and they describe the tasks of their bearers and constitute a continual reminder to the child of the responsibilities that are waiting up ahead. A person's life project is therefore inscribed in the name that he or she carries. As my name implies, I'm here in the West to tell the world about my people in any way that I can and to take back to my people the knowledge that I gain about this world. My elders are convinced that the West is an endangered, uh, is as endangered as the indigenous cultures it has decimated in the name of colonialism. There is no doubt that at this time in history, Western civilization is suffering from a great sickness of the soul. The West, progressive, turning away from functioning spiritual values, its total disregard for the environment and the protection of natural resources, the violence of inner cities and their problems of poverty, drugs, and crime, and spiraling unemployment and economic disarray, and growing intolerance towards people of color and the values of other cultures, all of these trends, if unchecked, will eventually bring about a terrible self-destruction. In the face of all this global chaos, the only possible hope of self-transformation 
unless we as individuals find new ways of understanding between people, ways that can touch and transform the heart and soul deeply, both indigenous cultures and those in the West will continue to fade away. This made that all the wonders of technology and all the many philosophical isms and all the planning of the global corporations will be helpless to reverse this trend. It has taken me years of battling insecurity, uncertainty, hesitation, and God knows what other types of subtle complexes to write this book. The greatest obstacle that I encountered was finding a suitable way to tell my story. I could not speak English when I arrived in the United States 10 years ago, even though I had taken some English classes at a Jesuit seminary in my teens, although I have made great strides in orally communicating in that language, it was still very difficult to write this book. One of my greatest problems was that the things I talk about here had not happened in English. They happened in a language that was a very different mindset about reality, or should I say has a very different mindset about reality. There is usually a significant violence done to anything being translated from one culture to another. Modern American English, which seems to me better suited for fix, quick fixes and the thrill of consumer culture, seems to falter when asked to communicate another person's worldview. From the, from the time that I began to jot down my first thoughts until the last word, I found myself on a bumpy road of mediumship, trying to to ferry meanings from one language to another and from one reality to another, a process that naturalizes and confuses them. I have had to struggle a great deal in order to be able to communicate the story to you. It is basically the story of my initiation into two different and highly contradictory cultures. I was born in the early 50s in Petunia Fessau in West Africa which was then called the Upper Volta by the colonial French government who invaded my country in the early 1900s. Although my parents did not record my birth and to this day are still in conflict as to the exact date, my papers say that I am, was born in 1956. When I was four years old, my childhood and my parents were taken from me when I was literally kidnapped from my home by a French Jesuit missionary who had befriended my father. And at that time, Jesuits were trying to create a native missionary force to convert a people who had worried their message along with their colonial oppression. For the next 15 years, I was in a boarding school, far away from my family and forced to learn about the white man's reality, which included lessons in history, geography, anatomy, mathematics, and literature. All of these topics were presented with a good dose of Christianity and its temperamental God who forced everyone to live in a constant fear of his wrath. At the age of 20, I escaped and went back to my people and found that I no longer fit into the tribal community. I risked my life to change or to undergo the Dagara initiation and thereby return to my people. During that month-long ritual, I was integrated back into my own reality as well as I could be, but I never lost my Western education. 
So I'm a man of two worlds, trying to be at home with both of them, a difficult task at best. When I was 22, my elders came to me and asked me to return to the white man's world and share with them what I had learned about my own spiritual traditions through my initiation. For me, initiation had eliminated my confusion, helplessness, and pain and opened the door to a powerful understanding of the leap between my own life purpose and the will of my ancestors. I had come to understand the sacred relationship between children and old people, between fathers and their adolescent sons, between mothers and daughters. I knew especially why my people have such a deep respect for old age and why a strong functioning community is essential for the maintenance of an individual's sense of identity, meaning, and purpose. I used this knowledge as my starting point. My own elders had experienced French colonialism and the culture of the West as a force that used violence as a means to eradicate traditional life ways. They had seen their own youth stolen from them as they vainly struggled against the incursions of these intruders. During these years in which my people were trying to make sense of a people whose every action seemed to go against the natural order of things, creating chaos, death, and destruction, the sense of unified community that sustained their tribal life was profoundly destabilized. These foreigners seemed to have no respect for life, tradition, or the land itself. At first, my elders refused to believe that a race of people could cause such suffering and death, could possibly have any respect for itself. It did not take long before they realized that the white man wanted nothing short of the complete destruction of their culture and even their lives. For some of my people, befriending the white man was the best way they could find to fight back. By doing this, they hoped to get to know how the white man's mind worked and what they thought they were accomplishing by invading another people's ancestral lands. Not all of my people were willing to have as much contact with the whites. Some village people who chose to see things only from their own tribal perspective believed that to have become so spiritually sick, the white man must have done something terrible to his own ancestors. Others who knew a little about military culture, imperialism, and colonialism thought that the white man must have destroyed his own land to have to come to here to take the land of others. In spite of the best efforts of all my people, the whites kept on coming, kept on doing whatever they pleased, and kept on taking more and more of our land, our beliefs, and our lives. Many years later, my generation finds itself gripped by a powerful irony. Suddenly, it has become popular to defend tribal people, their world view, and their life ways. But while the West is engaged in a great debate about what it means to preserve culture, the indigenous world is aware that it has already lost the battle. It seems obvious to me that as soon as one culture begins to talk about preservation, it means that it has already turned the other culture into an endangered species. Then you have the purists on the other side, or should I say on either side, 
people want indigenous cultures to remain exactly the same as they have always been. In many cultures, the Dagara included, it is no longer a question of preservation, but of survival in some form or another. The culture's own reality has already been superseded by the fashionable modern modernity. I see my position as a two-way passage of information, as both a bridge and a conduit. By agreeing to move between both worlds, I seek to bring about some kind of balance. I deeply respect the story that I have told in this book. I respect it because it embodies everything that is truly me, my ancestors, my tribe, my life. It is a very complicated story whose telling caused me great pain, but I had to tell it. Only in this way could I ultimately fulfill my purpose to befriend the stranger enemy. This is not the first task set me by my elders, nor, nor will it be my last. My first assignment after my initiation into the tribe was to seek interest into the university. I did so equipped with the special knowledge that initiation had provided me with. I had one thing in my pocket, a little talisman. This talisman was an oval-shaped pouch stuffed with a stone from the underworld and some other secret objects collected in the wild. Though it is common to carry talisman in my village, for they are a great source of power and protection, people fear them. Every Dagara knows that powerful objects are dangerous. Depending on the action of its bearer, such objects have the power to help, but also to hurt. Therefore, talismans are treated with great respect and care. My pouch was sewn tightly shut and then decorated in a way that enhances ugliness and scariness. These objects are always made to look ugly and fearsome, perhaps to stress their supernatural quality. Besides my experience with the other world, besides my experience with the other world has led me to understand that anything that crosses from that place into this one is seldom beautiful as if anything spiritually potent must look ugly and smell bad in order to work. My talisman certainly did. At one end of the oval pouch was a stuff of strange animal hair. The government of what was then called Upper Valta had a school called Centre Etrudes Supericies, whose course of studies was the equivalent of a four-year college in the West. It had been built several years, years earlier by a now-departed French colonial as part of the incentive to the newly independent countries in Africa. The end of the territorial colonialism was followed by a period of neo-colonialism that took the form of bilateral cooperation, economic sponsorship, and the professional support in every pertinent department of the new government. And so the college was just one of the many faces of this new colonialism whose goal was to place the newly independent countries into a state of perpetual indebtedness. It is important to understand that modern Africa does not exist as it is by the will of its leaders, but rather by the will of the very powers that divided it between them. Every student 
in the center was there on scholarship. And every year there was a huge number of candidates who applied for a few scholarships available. Those who obtained them were usually students whose parents were either well-to-do or could pull some strings. The politicians would simply order the scholarship board to grant the awards to their relatives or children. Wealthy people who lacked political power bribed their way into scholarships for their loved ones, and even the wealthy did not always succeed. But after the political scholarships were granted, there were few left for the bulk of the candidates. The year that I applied was no different from any other. I had filled in my application for a scholarship, knowing that I had no chance of getting beyond the fouling. But I also knew that my tribal elders had given me instructions as to how to apply, even though they had no basis upon which to work. How, I wondered, could these people, accustomed to village life, know how to get one's needs met in the city? Yet I felt it was still worth a try. What did I have to lose? And to my great surprise, I was scheduled for an interview and was not only informed of my acceptance to the school, but was given a full scholarship on the spot. I cannot tell you the details of my how my talisman worked, for I prefer not to blunt its effectiveness. But it has still helped me today to speak in big assembly halls. Through invitations coming on orthodox ways, I always seem to be able to get what I need and where I need to go and do what I need to say. I spent four years in that Center for Higher Education, which later became the National University. I walked away from it with the bachelor's degree in sociology, literature, and linguistics, and a master's thesis in world literature. I did not know why I had been there. The system did not care whether you really learned anything or not. It was based upon the regurgitation of memorized material fed to one by professors who read from their notes on, and bored, sleepy, and sometimes even drunken voices. Most of what they had said was incomprehensible. And my only reason for being there was our need to transcend the alarming social and economic situation in which most of us were caught. I did not need to be told that a proper Western education was the key to good Western jobs and a decent life. For most people, top performance in that school meant hard work. As an initiated man, I did not have to work hard to get my degrees. I skipped a great deal of the classes, made sure that I was present at the exams, and walked away with my diploma. The answers to the exam questions were mostly visible in the auras of the teachers who constantly patrolled the aisles of the testing rooms. I just had to write those answers down quickly before any one of them noticed how strangely I was looking at them or her. During my second year in college, the teachers began to notice me. It was harder and harder for me to cut classes. When I was picked up by the professor to reply to a question, I continued to instinctively seek the answer in his aura, as I did during exams. To me, it was like being asked to read out of an open book. This method worked so well that one day one of my teachers looked at me suspiciously and asked, have you been reading my mind? Of course, I said no. We were in the modern world where such things are impossible. My talisman continued to work with me. I was awarded a scholarship to the Sorbonne where I received a DEA, which is the Diploma Etus, 
approach upon it in political science. I later continued my education in Brandeis University, earning a PhD in literature. I'm not writing about all these accomplishments to impress you, but to show you that what I have learned as an initiated man really works, at least for me, in the Western reality. Coming to the United States was a matter of necessity. I could not reconcile myself with what France reminded me of. Every day I was told in a thousand ways that Africa gave its life force for France to look and its people to live like this. The temperament of the Parisians was most conducive to irritation, discomfort, and even murderous thoughts. The African had become a pest, reminding the French of their own guilt. My own racial consciousness was heightened as a result and led me to dangerous behaviors such as jumping into the metro without paying and eating my way through a supermarket. I came to the United States shortly after my mentor announced it is in the course of one of my numerous divination sessions during my first trip to the village. He said that I was going to cross the big sea into a land where I would be able to do what I must. A scholarship brought me here. That's the way most Africans enter into the heart of civilized world. During my time in the West, I find myself facing an interesting paradox. People approach me not because I am an educated man, but because the tribal outfit, outfit that I wore, and, and it seems to have an effect on them. It initiates contact. Conversations always seem to begin with someone saying, nice outfit. Where did, where did you come from? And I would answer by saying, Burkina Faso. The response was invariably, what? Oh, where is that? Sometimes I feel like a walking billboard. But these conversations always give me food for thought. I learned to understand my own culture better by comparing it with others. Ironically, I am more free to be African in the West than I am in Africa. In my country, a man with many degrees, as I have, as I have wears a Western suit and tries to act cosmopolitan. He does not want to be reminded of where he came from or what he has left behind. He has turned his back on superstition and embraced progress. Here in the West, I have a great deal of time for spiritual contemplation and, and study, and much more time to share things of the spirit with others. If I was still living in my village in Africa, nearly every spare moment would be taken up with scratching a living from the exhausted soil that is all colonialism that all colonialism has left us with. The 600 American dollars I send every year to my family feeds them and many others for a year. Although I miss them and would prefer to see them more often, I know that I am better able to care for them here than I could by going home and picking up a hole, even if the elders had left that option open, open up to me. Living in this culture and being openly African has also its moments of comedy and suspense. For example, when I travel to conferences, I always take my medicine bag with me. I've always been afraid to check it in in the baggage for fear that it would somehow be lost. A terrible thought to contemplate since without it, 
and the magical objects that it contains, I would not be able to do many hundreds of divinations that I perform for people each year. The first time I carried my medicine bag through the airport, I realized when I arrived at the x-ray machine that I could not have my x-ray, my medicine, my medicine bag x-rayed. I did not want my medicine to be seen. I realized that if I did, I would have to explain its strange context to the guards, and this would be awkward, to say the least. Besides, I was not altogether sure with this modern technological contraption and what it would do to my medicine. The guard asked me if I had films in the bag, and I said no, but I had something just as sensitive, I told him, and that did it. Rustling with suspicion, the security officer poured the contents of the bag onto the table. I saw his eyes open wide as he asked, What the hell is this? Other officers joined him as they looked in surprise at the content of my medicine bag. One of them, a black officer, said, Oh, that's voodoo stuff, and ordered them to put it through the x-ray machine while he held the talisman in his head, in his hand, and looked at it with great suspicion. I stood there wishing I could have checked my pouch and the baggage to avoid this embarrassment, but I realized I could not part with my medicine. By this time, a small crowd had gathered. My heart was beating rapidly. My medicine had become public. I quickly put it back into the bag and put the bag onto the x-ray conveyor belt. My talismans came on screen. The officer stopped the belt stared at them intently for an infinite amount of time, and then reactivated the belt. I picked my bag up with relief at the other end, and from that day on, I began to think about new ways to avoid this embarrassing, or those embarrassing moments. Every day we get closer to living in a global community with distances between countries narrowing. We have much wisdom to gain by learning to understand other people's cultures and permitting ourselves to accept that there is more than one's version of reality. To exist in the first place, each culture, culture has to have its own version of what is real. What I am attempting to share with you in this book is only one of the endless versions of reality. In the culture of my people, the Dagara, we have no word for supernatural. The closest we come to this concept is Yimbogora, the thing that knowledge can't eat. This word suggests that life, the power of certain things, depend upon their resistance to the kind of categorizing knowledge that human beings apply to everything. In the Western reality, there is a clear split between the spiritual and the material, too, and the material, between religious life and secular life. This concept is alien in the Dagara. For us, as for many indigenous cultures, the supernatural is part of our everyday lives. To a Dagara man or woman, the material is just the spiritual taken on form. The secular is religion in a lower key, a rest area from the tension of religions and spiritual practice. Dwelling in the rim of the sacred is both exciting and terrifying. A little time out once in a while is in order. The world of the Dagara 
does not distinguish between reality and imagination. To us, there is a close connection between thought and reality. To imagine something, to, to closely focus one's thought upon it, has the potential to bring that something into being. Thus, people who take a tragic view of life are always expecting the worst, usually manifest that reality. Those who expect that things will work together for the good usually experience just that. In the realm of the sacred, this concept is taken even further. For what is magic but the ability to focus thought and energy to get results on the human plane? The Dagara view of reality is large. If one can imagine something, then it has at least the potential to exist. I decided to do a little experiment of my own with reality versus imagination. When I was home visiting my village in 1986, I brought with me a little electronic generator, a television monitor, a VCR, and a Star Trek tape titled The Voyage Home. I wanted to know if the Dagara elders could tell the difference between fiction and reality. The events unfolding in a science fiction film considered futuristic or fantastic in the West were perceived by my elders as the current affairs and the day-to-day lives of some other groups of people living in the world. The elders did not understand what a starship is. They did not, they did not understand what the fussy uniform of the crew members had to do with making magic. They recognized and Spock a quantum valley of the seventh planet, the very one that I described later in this story. And their only objection to him was that he was too tall. They had never seen a Kuntumbali that big. They had no problems understanding light speed and teleportation, except they could have done it more discreetly. I could not make them understand that all this was not real. Even though stories abound in our culture, they have no word for fiction. The only way that I could get across to them the Western concepts of fiction was to associate fiction with telling lies. My elders were comfortable with Star Trek, the West's version of its own future, because they believe in things like magical beings, such as Spock, traveling at the speed of life and teleportation. The wonders that Westerners imagine being part of their future are very much a part of my elders' present life. This irony is that, or should I say the irony, is that the West sees the indigenous world as primitive and archaic. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the West could learn to be as archaic as my elders are? As in the case of Star Trek, Star Trek Westerners look to the future as a place of hope, a better world where every person has dignity and value, where wealth is not unequally distributed, where the wonders of technology makes miracles possible. If the people in the West would embrace some of the, of the more positive values of the indigenous world, perhaps that might even provide them with a shortcut to their own future. Many people in the West seem to be trying to find this shortcut through their commitment to learning about indigenous cultures 
and non-Western forms of spirituality are most recently through the men's movement. If these seekers fail, and if the modern world lets the indigenous world die, it will probably mean a long, hard trip into the future in search of the values of the past. Westerners forget that it is not only indigenous cultures that have a deep commitment to non-Western ideas about reality. Even in a highly industrialized culture like Japan, a connection with the ancestors is taken very seriously. When the new emperor of Japan was installed, many leaders in the West were disturbed by the fact that as part of his inauguration, he went into the temple and spoke to his ancestors. This is that modern world can't deal with his ancestors and endure its past. It is my belief that the present state of restlessness that traps the modern individual has its roots in the dysfunctional relationship with the ancestors. In many Western cultures, the ancestors have an intimate and absolutely vital connection with the world of the living. They are always available to guide, to teach, and to nurture. They represent one of the pathways between the knowledge of this world and the next. And most importantly and paradoxically, they embody the guidelines for successful living. All that is most valuable about life is enhanced within this observation. Unless the relationship between the living and the dead is in balance, chaos results. When a person from our culture looks at the descendants of the Westerners who invaded their culture, they see a people who are ashamed of their ancestors because they were killers and martyrs and masquerading as artisans of progress. The fact that these people have a sick culture comes as no surprise to them. The Dagara believe that if such an imbalance exists, it is the duty of the living to heal their ancestors. If these ancestors are not healed, their sick energy will haunt the souls and psyches of those who are responsible for helping them. Not all people in the West have such an unhealthy relationship with, with their ancestors. For, but for those who do, the Dagara can offer a model for healing the ancestors, and by doing so, healing oneself. Because the world is becoming smaller, people from different realities can benefit from learning about and accepting each other. The challenge of modernity is to bring the world together into a unified whole in the middle of which diversity can exist. The respect for difference works only if connected with this vision. And now I pause to take a break, and I will be back with you momentarily to continue the introduction to of water and the spirit. presented the material contained in this book was at a multicultural men's conference in Virginia. I needed to discover what in the sequence of initiation experiences could be put into words and then see how this information would be received by the audience. 
I had heard other people tell the story of their initiation, but these stories sounded greatly different from mine. From the stories I've heard, I seem to make the process a mild formality, deliberately safe to the point where everyone was guaranteed to come into life in the Degara culture. An initiation is a dangerous commitment that can and sometimes does result in death. And I did not want to upset people who might be thinking of it differently. Was I and did not want to upset people who, who were supposed to make friends with the stranger. I did not want to make initiation sound unreachable either. My wish was to strike some kind of balance between the modern person's mind and his heart by committing to both of them. With this group of men, opposing color and culture who had gathered together to find out how to bridge gaps and reach out to each other. The initial atmosphere was once closer to war than to peace. At this point, I would like to also share with you that my wife would like to share some thoughts with you when she comes into the studio. She should be back here momentarily. On the day of the presentation of my presentation, as Malagoma continues, the room was jam-packed with busy professional men who had entered a whole week off their schedule to come to this conference. Their expectations were high. As I began telling my story, I could hear the sound of my own voice competing with the pounding of my heart and the terrible sound of the audience's silence. Images of my initiation rushed into my mind, and as someone stood behind me, passing them to me on pitch postcards, I only took them and passed them on. Soon I forgot my heartbeat, and then the crowd, then myself, and I realized as I moved through the landscape of initiation that a great number of episodes were to be in the picture of my, honey, are you there? Of my attention. Not because I did not remember them fully, but because they were part of the untellable. When I finished, something happened that I could have never expected, something I was prepared, not prepared to handle. 120 men gave me a standing ovation, men of European, American, Oriental, Italian, and Native American descent. The intensity of their response filled every corner of my mind, body, heart, and threatened to draw tears out of me. I fought back as hard as I could to keep from weeping while clapping seemed to go on for an eternity. I did not remember how I discovered from this response the whole time as all I could do was wonder what could be the explanation of this kind of overwhelming response. What was in those men that understood what I had said about initiation? so fully that they responded as to if something thing was not familiar with them. They were not simple men. On the contrary, they were sophisticated, highly educated individuals, psychologists, therapists, anthropologists, men versed in myth, medical doctors, sociologists, lawyers, and who knows what else. They all had the same response. It took me a week and more to remember from the telling of my story that people come to me afterwards actually if I had written it down so they could have it. I had long had a question as to whether I could tell the untellable. I had now had my answer. Some parts at least could be told, so I knew where to start. Please hold on, and I will be back with you in a moment.
It took me a week and more to recover from the telling of my story. As I mentioned, Maradona mentions that people came to him afterward to ask if he had written it down so they could have it. I had long had a question as to whether I could tell the untellable. I now had my answer. Some parts of these could be told, so I knew where to start. Since then, I've told the story of my initiation many times. The response has invariably been the same, and this response has given me the courage to share more information about elders, youth, medicine, healing, and the indigenous world of the Dakara, which is my own initiation and had allowed me to access. My grandfather's funeral ritual described in this book was one of those realities. I presented once at a conference, leaving out many of the elaborate magical details. I was hardly surprised that it too had the power to touch people in this culture. I have since then, and with great support, conducted a form of the Dakara funeral ritual with Americans as participants. Watching people of this culture devote themselves to world funeral, uh, devote themselves to a world that was unfamiliar with them. I was glad that the elders from my village weren't present. They would have thought that I had men mourning their losses, and, and it broke my heart. It is in response to them and to others who desire to know more that I have gathered the energy to write this book. It is also for every old person in this culture who feels abandoned, as if he or she has become useless, and for the young ones in search of a purpose, and for a blessing for some sacred old hands that I write. These two people, groups of people, need to get their relationships straight because they will discover each other through this book. Their unspoken support has given me the courage to speak out clearly and explicitly. At this point, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to share with you and uh, introduce my wife, who happens to be in the studio with me, and she would like to share some words with you about our experience with Dr. Malo Domisome and her reading of the book. Hi, Nath. Hi. Good evening, everyone. Alafia Hatapunanas. Namaste, my name is Spirit Change. I'm glad to be here in the studio this afternoon. We hosted at our home about a year ago or so an event for Maladoma Sone. As you know, he travels extensively and he does divinations all over the world. And during his travels, he visits those of us he stays with those of us who host his divination events for him, and his energy is so powerful. Dr. Somme's energy leaves a lasting impression wherever he goes. We've been to lectures that Dr. Somme has done at Long Island University. Uh, we've been to an event that he was involved in in Harlem where he was part of a panel discussion. And it's something about the initiation process. It's something about the calling of the ancestors, which leaves a permanent impact on everything and everyone that are blessed to be touched by his presence. When I read Dr. Somme's book, I was, I was actually introduced to Dr. Somme's book 
years before I met Dr. Somme. And I was introduced to his book by one of my teachers and elders. And I used his book as a textbook almost, along with other material that I was using along my spiritual path. And when I met Dr. Somme in person for the first time, I had to relay that experience to him. I remember telling him, I studied with you before you even knew who I were. And I explained to him how I had been introduced to his book by one of my elders, Baba Reverend Hari Kafri Andongo, several years prior, and how I had studied that book for years. So I, I certainly recommend that, you know, it's, a, it's an awesome experience. It's spiritually enlightening. I certainly recommend the book to anyone that might be interested in reading it. And those of you who are blessed to listen to the show, it's a, it's a treat. And I'm listening, I'm listening to my husband reading the book, and it's like a treat for me as well, even though I, I must have read the book two or three times. Usually when I read, I'll read a book quickly to find out what's in it, and then I'll go back and read it very slowly so that the content can stay with me. And that's what I did with Dr. Somme's books of Water and the Spirit, The Healing Wisdom of Africa, I have not read his latest book yet, but I'm, I'm soon to, um, to read that. They're all wonderful teaching aids. They're enlightening. And even just purchasing and having the book, again, there's something about the energy of the book. We all know that everything is energy. We know that we're all connected. But we know that we're all part of the collective consciousness. And um, believe you, believe me when I tell you, just the fact of purchasing and owning the book, even if you don't have a chance to read it right away, which happens to me all the time. I'll see a book that I want to read, and I'll get it, and it, it could be months before I have time to read it. But with this book, just purchasing it and having it, watch how the energy in your home changes, just having it on your table or having it on the the stand next to your bed. Just watch the way the energy in your home changes. The words of the book are healing because the book is imbued by the power of the person who wrote it, who is imbued by the wisdom of his ancestral lineage. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Here's my husband. Honey, would you like to share about your show also? I would hate to end the show without you letting you know that you're having a show coming up tomorrow and every Sunday. Some of you may be aware I host a blog talk radio show Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock Eastern Time. The, the name of the show is New Spirit Talk Radio. Uh, right now we're engaged in the topic of reincarnation. It's many aspects. And uh, the show is actually based on the book Many Lives, Many Masters by Dr. Brian Weiss. That's the book that I read um, every Sunday morning. We're almost finished. And if you have not had a chance to um, listen to my show, if you're interested in the topic or if you're interested in the book, just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash 
New Spirit Talk Radio, and New Spirit is spelled N-U-S-P-I-R-I-T hyphen talk, T-A-L-K hyphen radio, and that will land you on my show page. You can click the links on my show page to take a look at my website, which is spiritchange.com, and you can also link to Many Lives, Many Masters from my show page where you can purchase a copy of the book as well. So um, blessings to you all. I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of my husband's show this afternoon. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow morning on my show. Thank you, honey. Um, yes, I must add also you can purchase any of Maladomi's books, Aborted in the Spirit and the Healing Wisdom of Africa, from my website, which is www.drumsofchangedrumsofspirit.com, or you can go to www.drumsofchange.com and um, link on to the bookstore, as well as I mentioned earlier, link on to the drum store so that you can purchase your drum and uh, become part of the Million Home Drum Network, which is, uh, I just made the announcement today, uh, the website is still under construction, and it hasn't been officially launched, but we're in the pre-launch stages. And, of course, if you'd like to be a founding member, please email me, at millionhomedrumnetwork at gmail.com. I look forward to uh, uh, exper- experiencing this profound uh, uh, program and network where we will have those of us throughout the African diaspora to have a drum within a home with a designated drummer who will perform ritual uh, from the birth of a baby to when someone goes in transition. Uh, we will have a designated drummer perform in any other significant event that happens between them, such as birthdays and weddings. So I do thank you. Uh, This is my first time reading uh, a book on my program, and I had to go away from the program uh, somewhat because of the fact that So uh, I, I trust that you will come on again. I will be continuing reading this book tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock, and I will also have scheduled uh, readings further on during the, the week of, uh, of uh, this coming week, as well as next Saturday. So until later, tomorrow evening, we will continue. I thank you for tuning in, and uh, again, I end as I begin praise to the Most High and thanks to our ancestors to my siblings, to my mother-in-law, to my lovely wife, and uh, I must say namaste, and that the divinity in me recognizes and respects the divinity within you. Peace and blessings.